0: And we're back.
1: He loved the simplicity of a child's perspective. And quite frankly, we all need to become children. All of us. And I don't want this book to be considered a children's book. We're not doing anything to help them. And they're making it. And that day when they were releasing those fish, the power of their voices in prayer and song. I mean, I was dissociated. It was so powerful. He said to me, Eileen, you've been touched by the salmon spirit. And she said, as far as I'm concerned, there is no difference between the Holy Spirit of the Catholic faith and the Salmon Spirit. They can both touch us.
2: Hello, and welcome to Earthy Chats, where we're cross-pollinating ideas in environmental education. We're here to share with you the best environmental education resources from across Canada and chat with their creators, digging in as to why they do this work, how they do it, and what you can do with it. I'm one of your hosts, Jade Harvey-Beryl. I'm the Wild Voices Program Manager for the Columbia Basin Environmental Education Network, or CBEAN for short. A member of Canada's non-profit outdoor learning store team, and owner of Stoked On Science, an education company and consultancy where I deliver and design environmental and science programs for K to adult across BC.
0: And I'm another one of your hosts, Ian Shanahan, the general editor of Green Teacher, a global network of environmental educators that produces a quarterly magazine, books, webinars, and the podcast, Talking with Green Teachers.
2: Let's get started.
1: Well, I happen to believe that what unifies us with the Indigenous people is love and respect. Love and respect for land. We need to walk together forward into the future, and it's been a great privilege. I have not made a dime, I can tell you, on any of it. But it has been the privilege of my life to work with this tribe. I love them, I respect them, and I just can't imagine my life without having done it.
2: This edition of Earthy Chats, uh, Cross Pollination and Ed Ideas, we're welcoming Eileen Perks to have an earthy chat focused on rivers and her beautiful book. So I'm going to give you a quick intro um, from it. The story of the Columbia River is unique. Uh, Told from the river's perspective, um, this book, Heart of the River, is an immersive, empathetic portrait of a once wild river and of the Sinai's first people who lived on the main stem of the Great Reston River for thousands of years, uh, and continue to do so even though Canada declared them extinct in 1956. Um, The book's re-release comes at a critical time for natural systems and for reconciliation with indigenous people across North America. The Colville Confederated Tribes representing over 3,000 Sinaiaks people recently won a precedent-setting case in the Supreme Court of Canada affirming that Aboriginal rights do not stop at the border. The important story of the Sinaiaks weaves together with the ongoing ecological impact of the hydropower development on the Columbia and its tributaries. Uh, So this book that we're going to talk about and introduce a bit more is a book for anyone of any age who cares about rivers. Uh, central to the story is the joyous spirit of salmon, once a free swimmer in the Columbia's currents north of the border, but now blocked from its ancestral spawning grounds by Grand Coulee and other dams. Uh, restoring migratory fish indigenous to the Upper Columbia will require transboundary cooperation. Uh, and with indigenous nations on both sides of the US and Canada border now leading the way, there's a, a whole organization and group and collaborative effort um, to reintroduce salmon into the Upper Columbia, uh, many are hopeful that fish will return. Uh, this book is illustrated by Nelson BC designer Nicola Little, Lytle. Lytle. Lytle, I'm sorry. Uh, and this portrait of a globally significant river will inspire anyone who reads it to care about the future of the salmon, a fish that unites all of us in its quest for freedom and possibility. Um, and releasing the second edition of the book, uh, which Eileen wrote some time ago, has been a joint effort uh, with authors, with um, the organisation Wildsite, and the Sinaiqs people of the Colville Reservation. Uh, and it has been generously supported by the Columbia Power Corporation and the Columbia Basin Environmental Education Network. Proceeds from book sales support local youth to attend the Columbia River Field School, which is uh, an engaging, hands-on um, learning opportunity where students uh, get to actually Paddle down the Columbia River, and it's a really incredibly immersive and life-changing experience for those students. So uh, today again, uh, we welcome Eileen Perks uh, to have a healthy chat. Uh, thank you for joining us, Eileen.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And whereabouts are you joining us from?
1: Yeah, I uh, I am joining you from an unlikely place for someone who is well known for her work on the Upper Columbia Basin. I uh, am now currently relocated to Topanga Canyon in the Los Angeles River Basin. So that's my, my not new home. It's an old home. I was born and raised in California and it was the droughts that I grew up with in California that in part informed my love of water, my fixation on water as a potent symbol both a poetic symbol and also a symbol for consciousness, really, around how we interact with the natural systems. So not that long ago, I was convinced by my two sons to return to the United States. They wanted me closer to them. And uh, so I've been living just for a handful of months now. Uh, I brought my 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 office with me and I left my heart in the Upper Columbia Basin mm. for sure. Uh, so the heart of a river has multiple meanings now for me uh, because a really big piece of who I am was formed in the Upper Columbia River region. And my entire apprenticeship as a writer was you know, as a result of my love for that landscape. Uh, And I'm busy down here looking everywhere for water. It's really hard to find. (laughs) It's nothing like the rainforest that the Sinaixt people lived in for thousands of years.
0: No, certainly not. Have rivers always been front and center in your life? Or was there a particular spark moment that really made the connection very firm?
1: Well, you know, from the time I was a little girl, I was interested in, even in my high school days, I was an advocate for a creek, a large creek in my hometown in the Bay Area of San Francisco. And uh, I was a water advocate, I think, from around my early teens. And I do believe that it was formed uh, as a result of living in a drought-stricken landscape that the absence of water was what made me realize how valuable water is, if that makes any sense to you. Of course. Um, Those of us who live in the Upper Columbia region, it's the fourth largest watershed in North America by volume. There are larger landmass area watersheds, Mm -hmm. but by volume of water produced, it's the fourth largest in the entire North American continent. There is a lot of water in a very confined space in the upper Columbia region, the homeland of the Sinaigst people. So I had water everywhere around me when I came to the, to the upper Columbia region, which was then called the West Kootenai. Right. And, it was because of my work, primarily that we now use this term "upper Columbia more broadly, uh, because I believe in our bioregions and our and our our whole sense of who we are that it needs to be attached to the place, and the Columbia is such an important part of the upper mountainous region that forms its headwaters. Um, that it just seemed unnatural to reclaim it in a certain way. I didn't go as far as to reclaim it as Snake's land, which really, you know, to call it uh, Swanette, which is one of the words they use for the Columbia, um, is is really what you want to call it. Uh, But we're not there yet as a culture. Um, Right. And anyway, it was that living in a drought-stricken land is what turned me on to the importance of water. That's I think why rivers were important to me and they're a potent symbol, Uh, you know, and I I arrived in 1994 in a region that was absolutely strangled by hydroelectric development. And so I think the restrictions that the hydroelectric developments had placed on this watershed, it's one of the most intensively developed for hydroelectricity in the entire continent. There are 15 dams and generating stations of major size in a very small area there in the upper watershed you've got one just upstream of you jade there with revelstoke dam and the granddaddy of the whole system the mica project is about 135 kilometers north of you and so i began to feel energetically i think without sounding too much like a fruit and nut bar, <laughs> I began <laughs> to feel... My favourite chocolate, I must say. I love yeah. it too. It's one of the best things that the British Empire has ever created. <laughs> uh, I, I Got to I... have something, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of things to apologise for, but that's not one of them. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, I guess I picked up the river's restriction and related to it because of whatever struggles I was going through at the time. And empathy has always been a strong suit for me. And so because I'm a naturally empathetic person, and I was super empathetic before it became a fashion, Mm -hmm. much to my challenges in life, because not only did I feel the restrictions of the river, I felt the absence of the Sinaits people. And then it went one step further, according to one of the Sinai's leaders who passed away in 2016, Virgil Seymour, he explained a lot of my perspective by saying that I had been, quote, tapped on the shoulder by the ancestors. You've been tapped, Eileen. And so, but my powers of empathy, I think, opened up this whole world of understanding to me, that the general public and most historians had no idea about. We just took what the things looked like at the present moment as face value. But that wasn't my job, my job, I guess, I didn't ask for it. But my job was to animate the sufferings of this highly restricted industrialized river system and the extinction, the wiping off the record of these indigenous people. That was the journey as it began. It's pretty deep.
0: And this obviously set the groundwork for writing the book Heart of a River. Take us into that process.
1: I had published a book the year previous called The Geography of Memory, which is having its 20th anniversary this coming year and is about to be reissued in a much larger, more expansive edition a celebratory edition because of the reversal of the extinction by Rocky Mountain Books, a BC publisher, a Western Canada publisher. And um, the first edition though was a very small book, a very local book. And it had been out in print for a year, a year and a half and thoughtful people were running across it in the bookstores. And someone called me one night and said, we're involved in a storytelling festival in a rural area outside of Nelson. And we want one of our stories to be about something that isn't human. Because all of our stories are about people. And often they're focused on glorification of settlers, glorification of of settler-built culture. Of course. And we want something a little different. And we think you're the one to do it. And I said, well, let me give it some thought. And about... Mm. Within a week or two, I think I was probably closer to some sort of deadline and some sort of desperation had stirred in me. I was woken up in the middle of the night by the Columbia. How so? Literally woken up in the middle of the night. And I went out to my studio where I worked at the time. And I I basically just almost without stopping wrote what is now the heart of a river. It flowed through me, the story of the river. And in that moment at three o'clock in the morning, I didn't think, oh, I'm going to write from the river's perspective. I Mm. just wrote what came to me and it was the river speaking very strongly, very clearly. And I didn't have a choice. Most writers when they're deeply engaged in their material, have no choice about what they're writing about, how they're writing it. (laughs) It pulls. So then that was basically how it got written and I performed that to the storytelling festival. I memorized it and performed it. And that began its journey toward becoming a book. It started out as an art book, hand stitched, beautifully illustrated, very precious, for collectors only, $250 a pop. I'll take one. Well, that felt a little (laughs) odd. I thought, well, the book needs to go further than that. And one thing leads to another over time and you end up on the game square where you've got Nicola Lytle who uh, I had worked with on another project.
2: For those of you who haven't bought it yet, and you should, it is so beautiful. It is simplistic, elegant, colorful, but not garish. I just, yeah, we'll have a picture.
1: She did a beautiful job, didn't she?
2: Oh, it's it's magic.
1: Yeah, well, I had worked with her on another graphic project related to a museum exhibit that I had just finished. And I found her to be really talented and and a little, and she's a, kind of another one of those fruit and nut bars that's floating around. And we related really well together. And I just threw out to her the thought of, would you be willing to illustrate this? And she poured her whole heart into it. Nobody looks at that project. Nobody reads that book who falls in love with it, who doesn't end up putting their heart into it. Graham Rollins, who's associated with Raw wanted that book to have a second printing. And he has had a lot to do with it coming out now in its new form, in its fresh form, renewed. And I, you know, I hope it has great success and a wide market because the message is very important. And it applies to all of us, no matter where we live. Rivers, since then, have become persons. When I wrote that in 2003, nobody was talking about rivers being persons. I mean, I think the indigenous people were talking about it, but they were not, it wasn't in the mainstream.
0: Yeah, it wasn't widespread.
1: No, it wasn't, it was just a murmuring that was held within indigenous communities. And so, uh, you know, for me, it's been absolutely phenomenal to watch the change in what has it been not quite 20 years since I first put pen to paper for that story. It's phenomenal what's happening. There's such a wake up happening.
0: Yeah, and less than a generation, really, too. And oh, yeah, definitely. Very
1: definitely. nice to see. Yeah, yeah, it's heartening. Uh, we have a long way to go. Yep,
0: yeah, of course. Hey there, folks. This is Ian, one half of the Earthy Chats host team. I'm just here to let you know about the Talking with Green Teachers podcast, produced by Green Teacher. If you don't know who Green Teacher is, we are a nonprofit network of environmental educators all around the world. You can join this network for only $32 a year. That includes a subscription to our quarterly magazine, which has been running in North America since 1991. All proceeds go back into the organization to help us enhance environmental literacy among young learners. For more information, check out greenteacher.com. You can find Talking with Green Teachers wherever you get
2: your podcasts. So as you tell the story from the perspective of the river, it's a way in that, that connects, like you say, it, it, it humanizes. And so the river and it gives it a, a, an identity that perhaps appeals, I think to, to more people than just let's say environmental types. You can't read that book without f- having a, a, an emotional connection to the feelings that are portrayed through the prose
1: well and i would say too that with all respect to the environmental movement i think that i've long been troubled by an inherent judgment and divisiveness that has resulted uh, yeah. whether oh, for conscious sure. or not there has been um a polarizing force around a mm. lot of environmental perspectives and in my own work over 20 five years living in the upper columbia river region i gravitated to anybody who loved the river Mm -hmm. and i didn't find that it was necessarily environmentalists who i was connecting with
2: interesting
1: Uh, i was connecting sometimes with hydropower company employees
2: we have some very passionate ones here
1: yes and uh some of I was tutored and taught for my book, A River Captured, which is a history of the Columbia River Treaty and its impacts. I was uh, there were several moles who informed me (laughs) important information who had been at some time or were still involved in as employees in the industry. So you can have that conflicted position and still love the water and still love the river and I didn't believe that judgment was the way through. I still don't. And the least judgmental people I know on this turning earth are my indigenous friends, primarily and specifically the Senext people. But in a book, book I'm working on now about rainforest and climate change, I <sighs> see that lack of judgment in the Talawa of Northern California, in the Yurok of Northern California in the Navajo, in the Hopi, they're not judgmental people. Their hearts are healthy and strong and we need that. We need that leadership.
0: More than ever.
2: And you've talked about you writing this book and, um, but that it was a collaboration and that the information and the Indigenous perspectives and knowledge are really what shaped um, this creation. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Sure. Um, In 2003, when I made the decision to speak exclusively about the Sinaikst in that book related to the Upper Columbia, it took a lot of confidence and courage for me to do that because they were extinct at the time. And a lot of people didn't know their story and uh, people other instead had an impression of some first nations who were established and recognized by the Canadian government whose own treaty process involved claiming Sinaik's land you know the treaty process in British Columbia is built on overlapping claim concepts and so without the Sinaik's there there was no overlap there were just the other tribes claiming. And that's all going to begin to change now that the Sinaik's rights have been affirmed by the highest court in Canada. Thank heavens for that. Mm, it
2: was a good day. It was a good day. And we got and the news. It was
1: paid for by the federal government every single penny of it because they were the ones who made the mistake. Instead, a lot of the bill was footed by the tribal people themselves. And that's an injustice that still sits, you know, uncomfortable with me, that they were forced to pay for their legal services to establish a claim that was so obvious if you read the historical documents. It was so obvious. Anyway, back to when I wrote the book, it was an act of courage for me to focus on the Sinaik's only. Now it makes perfect sense, but then, I was sticking my neck out. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. And it was a little bit uneasy feeling that I had. And I had to do a lot of justifying. It just takes courage to work with what the truth really is.
2: And there is historically this suppression, right? There's the suppression of of the reality of what's happened. There's the discomfort, which I think is in my uh, interactions with indigenous people, knowledge keepers or educators is like the main barrier to reconciliation is a refusal to to just delve in to that pain and that grief and then I've been told okay now now that you've delved there that you've you've recognized that you have to let it go Mm -hmm. and like the river you have to let it flow away so that we can move forward with reconciliation and with um, support and with uplift but, but, I can... but,
1: but I would say, as a, uh, coming from a settler perspective and an ally's perspective, I would say, absolutely, we need to let it go. But I think it should bother us and make us uncomfortable for a while. And, you know, from my perspective with the work that I did for almost two decades, I was carrying almost sometimes it felt like the whole weight of my culture with regards to the Sinai story. And because I knew the truth. And I watched it so slowly emerge. And I was sat there through all the trial, the appeal, the this, the that. I listened to the B.C. government try to argue that, that it wasn't the truth. That was super painful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when the Indian Residential School controversy uh, erupted from the discovery of the truth that had been embedded where? in the land, those burial remains were in the land. The land spoke its truth about the sufferings of those children. And I had so many people contact me and say, wow. Or I watched it in social media. I had no idea. Wow, wow. And sometimes they would say that to me and I just couldn't resist. I would say, well, where have you been all these years? Why are you so surprised? Where have you let down your end in terms of knowing the truth of the land where you live? And it's full story, not the glorified settler thing.
2: I mean, in the UK where I grew up, we don't talk about the negatives of the empire and the genocide and the spreading of disease, bio war- warfare, whether intentional or not. You know, so I it took me coming here to start reading Canadian authors. And indigenous authors to be educated that way, and it, yes, it, I am sitting in my discomfort. I'm sitting in my discomfort, but I actually um, very recently was invited, um, slightly unexpectedly, to sit in a healing circle. I was walking with a young lady who was walking the spirits home from Kamloops uh, to Invermere. I was invited to join their circle, uh, and it was Blackfoot and Shushwap. Uh, coming together two groups had met on the road and she did she she said you have to be a voice you have to use your voice you have to be an ally but you've also you you take that grief and you and you acknowledge it but we we have to work together we have to find a way to move through that grief into a place of of care and affection and, and optimism and i feel that the book that you've written is optimistic mm-hmm. despite it I mean, like, this is the list of the the themes that I got from it. It's looking at history, geological time, landscape evolution, ecosystems, history generally, indigenous culture, settler culture, religion, disease spreading, development, modification of natural spaces. There's a lot in there, but it's still so accessible for youth and it is optimistic Mm you say it came out of you in sort of this this pouring but how how do you think all of that came out in a way that is still so accessible
1: i think that's the synthesis of information that you gather like i had gathered information i'm i'm a researcher i'm a writer i'm interested in subjects and i pursue them i look at them i gather information but i but i gather information on an intuitive basis as well as just a sort of a more clinical rational basis and so i would say that the knowledge that i had assembled that was kind of factual met with the intuitive capacity which is something that i think creative people i mean that's that's what that's our gift and our curse right <laughs> uh, so those two things kind of married together and I was asked, I was tasked with a story of a fairly brief length by the storytelling festival, which, you know, constraint is sometimes really good for
2: things because you don't have a lot of room to do it. So you have to express yourself in a way that is grabbing. That's right.
1: And then I have to give a, a, a shout out to my parents because my parents were both educators. And I am an introvert. I can't handle a classroom. I, I, it would exhaust me. This will, I will go lie down and curl up in a ball after this interview, right? Or I'll go swim in the ocean. Sounds um, tough good. life. <laughs> <laughs> Take me with you. Yeah. But I just want to finish my thought. And that is that my parents being both educators, I think that they helped to form me as someone whose work educates and is sensitive. My father was an elementary school educator. He loved children. He loved the simplicity of a child's perspective. And quite frankly, we all need to become children, all of us. And I don't want this book to be considered a children's book. And I've always marketed it when I was doing what little marketing there was as an all ages book. And I really believe that. And your response is very heartening to me because you know, that means, yeah, okay but it's also kind of an unusual book in that it's not this big huge fat sprawling you know i just finished reviewing a big fat sprawling book about the rivers of north america and it's it's a wonderful book in many ways but it's big fat
2: and sprawling <laughs> it's dense that they're more difficult to get through aren't they yeah. um yeah. and I as someone just
1: created so many words we've just like yeah. <laughs> oh.
2: You know? And my speciality is, is paleoclimatology, so using oh wow the fossil record of things to reconstruct past climates. And you literally did, in this book, like four pages with the volcano painting and things. Yeah. Um, and I, I love was like,
1: how she illustrated the volcano. I know, it's so
2: good. Um, oh, yeah, I'm quite jealous of what you've written there, because I sort of don't not sure I'll ever be able to express it better, but I'm gonna I'm gonna borrow it and Well use it. I, I
1: just I just need to call you up and say, call you to task here right now and say that that no one has written a simple explanation of the geological history of the Upper Columbia region. It's a complicated landscape. It's crazy making. People half the people I know don't understand. The way the watershed is shaped and how it is. So the paleo. What did you call yourself? A paleo.
2: Paleoclimatologist. You're a perfect I mean, person to write that. Well, well I do write. The pressure's bit, on. Oh, well, I know. I'm like, oh, it's getting all my my body's tingling. All of the resources featured in this podcast, plus many more, for students and educators alike, can be found online at the Outdoor Learning Store. Visit www. OutdoorLearningStore.ca to view what's on offer. From waterproof notepads to binoculars and dip nets to sit pads, the store has you covered to take your learning outside. In addition, there are educator resource books to help you take your outdoor education to the highest level. That's www.outdoorlearningstore.ca, we're Canada's non-profit resource store. We are the Columbia Basin Environmental Education Network or C-Beam, you can visit our website at cbeen.ca. We are the regional network for environmental education in the Columbia Basin, supporting a community of engaged and effective environmental educators by connecting them to resources, information, professional development and networking opportunities. What do you think are the biggest issues facing rivers in our modern world?
1: I think there there are two. One is freedom. How free are the rivers in your watershed? In what ways? Free to be and flow the way they want to, the way their natural system dictates. Yeah. Uh, Most rivers in North America of any size or significance have been manhandled. And I'm using that word on purpose. So I think that it's time to free them up in whatever ways we can. I'm not suggesting, for instance, for the Columbia that we have to remove a lot of dams, but I think we have to look at what the river has always wanted to do. That's what I say in the book. And that involves the free flow of water to an extent as possible, because right now the Columbia is stored within an inch of its life. It barely ever gets to flow free. And the river system suffers from lack of oxygenation And the salmon are not given free passage. So if we just take the Columbia as an example, if we want to honor it, we need to acknowledge that our values have constrained it enormously in one way, two ways. One, safety for human property, primarily in Portland, Oregon, and two, you know, cheap electricity. And there's even more pressure now because rivers are considered to be carbon neutral in their hydroelectric values. But I know from working with the tribes, with the Upper Columbia United Tribes, an organization based in Spokane, Washington, that is a tireless advocate, we should all thank them for the work they do on behalf of rivers. And these are indigenous tribes who are working and have been working for many, many years on this. And, you know, one of them says, We're not asking for the moon here. We're just asking for a little more water to flow through the gates at certain times in the water's hydrological cycle so that we can get the salmon up. And then we're asking for a little bit of salmon passage. We're not asking you to take all these dams out. We're asking you to change a little bit
0: in your time in the columbia ribbon columbia ribbon i've created a new entity the columbia (gasps) river (laughs) maybe i need to take a nap after this interview (laughs) Uh during your time on the columbia river did you see any opportunities for making those changes happen because it it's daunting stuff and i'm sure we could get into all the barriers that exist but do you see reasons for hope in yes letting it flow free letting the salmon have a more healthy environment
1: Yes, I do. And uh, right now, the U.S. and Canada are negotiating the Columbia River Treaty. It's uh, a portion of the treaty is expiring in 2024. And the U.S. and Canada are right now in international negotiations because the one portion of the treaty that is expiring has opened up all the possibilities for changes to the treaty that has not been changed since 1961 think of how much different the world is that we live in. And so one of the most hopeful signs that I have is the voice of the indigenous tribal people who live all along the Columbia. And in the U.S., on the U.S. side of the negotiating process, they accepted the tribe's report about how to make changes, but they didn't invite the tribe to the treaty table. Miraculously enough, Canada also began by refusing to allow the tribes, the First Nations, at the treaty table, but now they're there. About a year and a half ago, Canada made the decision to bring them to the treaty table. And I know from talking to some of the treaty negotiators who are non-Indigenous that this has made their life more difficult, this has made the process more challenging for them, because. The treaty process suddenly has advocacy for fish and water now whether or not that will survive all the political hurdles that a treaty renegotiation process will go through i can't predict that well of course but my hope is not vested in settler culture i think we have been greedy and selfish and destructive (laughs) destructive or we have been mindless we haven't understood the outcome of decisions that were being made. So I put full judgment on my culture for how it has created such a sad excuse for a river in the upper Columbia basin. And I give full marks to the indigenous people who have never stopped hoping. And that's, I guess, where my optimism comes from. Because if people who have been oppressed, declared extinct, If you look only in the U.S., they've been oppressed there too, driven onto reservations, mistreated, um, all kinds of things, half starved to death, and they're still hopeful. Well, that's my model right there.
0: There's a reason for hope. In bringing those stories to life, particularly coming from a settler perspective, and this is something we talked about in our third episode, what advice or what approach do you take in bringing Indigenous stories from various tribes to life, despite the fact that you are coming from a settler perspective?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, just first of all, before I answer that specifically, I'll just say that I think that the future is going to involve more of this. We must not silo ourselves from the Indigenous perspective. And what it requires is relationship. Hmm. So what I did was I got into relationship with either living or dead indigenous people. And you can do that through the written record. You can talk to or read from the perspective of indigenous elders Yeah. through the written record. So it's important not to say that doesn't matter because I have learned from watching the Sinaics, half of their court submissions were from the written record because that's where a lot of their traditional information has been stored. So I don't think people should be afraid of the written record. They just have to be careful about their sources and they have to know when they're hearing the real voice. And where, how do you know that? You know that through love and respect. I love the Indigenous people of the Upper Columbia Basin. I love them with all my heart. And I, they are my friends. And even if I had never met a living, breathing Sinaik's person, I know lots of them, but if I had not ever met a living, breathing Sinaik's person, I would still have the Sinaik's people who I read their accounts. Abel One, born in 1800 on the Columbia River, beautiful memoir that she told to her granddaughter and her granddaughter then told her granddaughter and it was recorded it's beautiful account of a feminine perspective on the columbia river and that to me is miraculous that i get to read that
0: and is it just a matter of like is it a matter of attribution of just saying look i am from a settler perspective but yeah. i have forged a relationship with these yeah. people and i am just using the the avenue that's available to me to tell these stories.
1: That's right, and so it's partly that, but it's love and respect has to be your motivator, not (laughs) self-glorification. And I think that indigenous people that I have worked with, they understand pure motivations. They understand love and respect. And the Manners I was taught as a settler, I was taught by Miss Manners and her mother, who was also Mrs. Manners, I was taught a lot of manners, almost too many for my own good. <laughs> but I was just talking to Shelley Boyd, who's the uh, next spokesperson in Canada. You know her.
2: Um, I've, I've chatted with her. Yeah, and uh,
1: she's a friend and I was telling her, uh, we were discussing someone who said some, a settler who said something like really stupid and rude and like real foot in mouth disease kind of thing at an Indigenous ceremony. And I said to her, for the many years I've been involved, that I've attended different ceremonies, that I've been at different events, I cannot imagine speaking out loud for anyone to hear me at one of those events because all my manners I was taught were, stay quiet, watch what's going on and be respectful. And so that's what I did. I just used the best manners I had every step of the way. And now I'm Of the tribe and they have endorsed this book that's coming out. They love the heart of a river. Lorrae Wiley, who's a gifted language speaker, is going to um you know do an interview on the 26th, which I'm thrilled about. And there's even the murmurings of the whole book being reissued in the Snakes
2: language now. Oh, nice. fabulous
1: would that be? So what if I had, with my talent and empathy and ability, said, I can't tell this story? I ask you that, Ian.
0: That's the core question, isn't it?
1: What if I had said that? Well, I happen to believe that what unifies us with the Indigenous people is love of and respect, love and respect for land. We need to walk together forward into the future. And it's been a great privilege. I have not made a dime, I can tell you, on any of it, but it has been the privilege of my life to work with this tribe. I love them, I respect them, and I just can't imagine my life without having done this.
2: The most beautiful sentiment, Um, and I think that that love and respect pours off of the page uh, and directly into the heart of the reader. Um, You can't see, Mm. the listeners can't see you but it's it's radiating from your face it's almost like you have a big burning red heart that's just pouring through the screen so
1: well that's the key to the whole thing right that we love the land and the people who came The snakes have a story of growing right out of the land the woman grew right out of the land itself right
2: stoked on science providing engaging educational and fun programs across the columbia basin is your school or organization looking to develop your environmental programming connect your outdoor time more deeply to the curriculum or engage your students or teachers with unique programs that go beyond the basic science topics like delving into the history of the earth how it's changed and where it's going if so visit www.stoked On science.com to connect for environmental education consulting or to book programs for your K to 12 and adult professional development courses. You know as an environmental educator as a scientist through my learning and experience with indigenous perspectives um, you know for me everything is just made up of energy you know particles and molecules and then the Indigenous ways that I have been introduced to with everything having a spirit, it's just the same thing. Mm-hmm. They just name it in a different way and express it in a different way and there is more allegory to its description. But it's just this different language to the scientific language of sharing the same message to me. And those perspectives for understanding and protecting our natural environment and reintroducing you know ways that have been practiced for thousands of years to make sure that salmon um had good spawning sites and making sure you don't cut the trees down on the banks of the river because firstly the bank will erode and that sediment will clog up the 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 river channel so they can't see and they can't breathe properly you don't cut the trees down because the shade from the trees uh, provides that coolness that the salmon need to spawn. It's not, like, we know that from the scientific record, but all you always have to do is look back at the, the indigenous perspective and they could tell you that. And I just, for me, the future is about that integration and, and remembering it's asking yeah. them to remember for us and for us to listen finally with open ears and an open heart and. Books like yours give me the the, the feeling of, of sheer optimism and positivity about what can be done when collaboration is allowed.
1: Yeah, and it is starting, I think, around the work on the salmon reintroduction on the Columbia because there are some very talented scientists who are now working for the tribe. And the tribe has actually educated some of its elders have said, go to school. And now the young people are highly educated. Many of them have master's degrees. The Helpset people of Northwestern British Columbia have a phenomenal set of things they're doing up there. Um, They're north of Bella Bella or around that area. And it's all because their own biologists and workers and botanists and everything else they're all indigenous so they've gotten the scientific education that gives them the kind of tick mark and they're indigenous in their perspectives and it it's changing their world and so i think we're we're getting there but 20 years ago if i asked a biologist working in the upper columbia if he thought salmon would ever return no way he said that is never gonna happen And in August of 2019, just before COVID struck, six months before, I was invited to a salmon reintroduction ceremony. It was a ceremony, not a biology experiment, where they released 30 Chinook into the reservoir above Grand Coulee, which meant that Canada was free and open upstream, no dividers other than the political one at the border and they know from telemetry readings that one or two of them got across the border they weren't able to find their spawning beds because they couldn't cross the border to look for them because of the international but they did survey for spawning beds south of the border and they found spawning beds they found places where the salmon spawned the next question will be did those survive, go through the dams without getting chewed up and make it out to sea. Already one fish has done that. From the uh, one that was released by the Spokane tribes. This is salmon. Yeah, seven. This is salmon that are coming back despite we're not doing anything to help them. And they're making it. And that day when they were releasing those fish power of their voices in prayer and song. I mean, I was dissociated. I, it was so powerful. I could hardly like keep myself in this world. And I was standing in the water downstream or a little ways away from where the releases were happening. And one, one, I just had to be in the water up to my knees and a salmon brushed against my calf. Well, it was as if I had been shot with an electric current. I, I couldn't believe it. And I talked to one of the tribal members who knows that I practice uh, the Catholic faith, believe it or not. It's my little secret. And (laughs) she she said to me, Eileen, you've been touched by the Salmon Spirit. And she said, as far as I'm concerned, there is no difference between the Holy Spirit of the Catholic faith and the Salmon Spirit. They can both touch us. And that was a big moment for me, Jade, Mm -hmm. uh, when I realized that we have the potential to really take off here with this, to really change the world. And this is a crazy time to be living in, but I am like the river, to quote my line from the story, I am still hopeful.
2: And that's beautiful. And that hope resonates, uh... Mm Deeply with me and I'm sure Ian um, from his nods uh, agrees too. Just to finish with spirit there, I think um, Ian and I have talked a lot and a lot of people in our world talk about um, needing to move back away from this egocentric system where humans are at the centre of everything and to eco-centric where we are just one part of the interconnecting web. And I think the spiritual nature of uh identifying the the living part of of anything biotic or abiotic within our ecosystem as as having you know a spirit and having importance um is so key um for the future of of protecting our planet and you know talking of the future what are your hopes for the outcomes of the book and for yourself as this the the earth keeps spinning and we rotate well i really the...
1: want that book to sell well because i want um the profits to feed the wild site uh, columbia river student program um because that program is based on a really simple principle that is really taught is really connected closely to what we've been talking about which is relationship mm. you can't love someone or something without being in relationship with it or her or him. It's impossible. And so what, what WildSide is doing with that program is, is in, it is bringing young people into direct relationship with the water. And so I want the book to sell well to support that. I think it would be great to have books like this for all the watersheds in North America, no matter their size. So that we can develop more empathy for what we have done so thoughtlessly to, uh, you know, it wasn't necessarily willfully evil of us, but it was definitely thoughtless. And we came here and in North, North America and very quickly with our pride in high gear, we did whatever we wanted, which is the opposite of the humility of the Indigenous perspective where they sit and wait and watch. What they know about salmon, they learned from watching them. And they have principle, when you pick out, when you fish for salmon, you throw back the biggest and you take the smaller ones. Yes. And we've done the opposite. And we went from 16 million salmon in the Columbia River system to a few hundred thousand when we're lucky.
2: And when you think about watching the environment, um a lot of the kids that actually are involved in this program are of the age where nowadays what they do is spend a lot of time watching their phones or their digital devices. Mm. And I've seen firsthand and the research supports that stewardship comes from time spent and that place-based connection. Um, and that's, for me, again, I didn't say that in the sort of themes of the book, but connection mm-hmm. and uh is is a huge theme for me of, of the book itself. Is there anything uh, a final thought as we wrap up here that you'd like to share about the book that we haven't haven't thus far? We've
1: covered a lot of ground we
2: have, haven't we? We've yeah, really covered Yeah,
1: I just like to say I'm just very grateful to uh Nicola Lytle and her talent and Graham Rollins at Wild Sight and his vision. Um and you know finally just that this is not a book that I don't think I even wrote. I think the river wrote the book. You know, I'm just the human form to be talking on the podcast.
2: You're just the vessel.
1: This book I've written about climate change and rainforest, which has a chapter in a thousand-year-old cedar forest that's still intact, just south of Revelstoke in the Encomaplu basin. Fabulous
2: um, place, really I've special. This
1: note that is connected to what I'm writing in the book. When culture When a culture lives disconnected from natural systems, this, meaning climate change, is what happens. We need louder and louder and longer and longer signals the more disconnected we are.
2: That's a powerful place uh, to finish and let people um, let that sink in into what that means to them and how, yes, you need to be out there to hear the signals, you need to hear the woodpecker drumming. You need to hear the splash of, I've watched salmon spawn in a creek near me and it is the most incredible experience. The kokanee. The kokanee. To close us here, we just wanna say thank you so much uh, for joining us, for sharing your perspectives and your eloquence. Um, It's fantastic. You can um, buy The Heart of a River uh, at the Outdoor Learning Store, that's outdoorlearningstore.ca. And um, it's, it's a beautiful piece and it will set off your bookcase magically and fill your heart and your mind with, with excellent facts and stories. So um, thank you for joining us and um, wish you all the best.
1: Thank you, Jade. Thank you, Ian.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Bye-bye.
2: Thank you so much for joining us for this month's Earthy Chat. You can find the resources featured in this podcast at the Outdoor Learning Store that's www.outdoorlearningstore.ca. You can also visit greenteacher.com for incredible educational resources and webinars and cbean, that's c b e e n.org for a range of environmental resources including professional development opportunities, grant information, and green jobs. Lastly, you can visit www.stokedonscience.com to chat with me, Jade, about science workshops or educational consulting. Tune in next month for more cross-pollination of ideas and another fun, earthy chat.
1: Let me tell you that little anecdote about prayer and water before we run out of time. This was shared with me by Shelley Boyd. In their language, the word for water relates to the word for where you go to pray. So that it, they're almost the same, they're interwoven. And I know today I have had Sinax, contemporary SNAICS people tell me when you're troubled, when you're down in trouble and you need a helping hand, go to the water.
2: I live that. I live that every day.